You are listening to the sermon podcast from Christ Community Church, Ardmore, Oklahoma. You can find more sermons and resources at ardmorecc.com. Now here's Pastor Artie Favre with today's message. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. You know, there are some phrases that I've been using that I want to keep using more and more and more because it, it, it is easy uh, because there's not a lot of cost to following Jesus in our day and time sometimes it robs us of some of the urgency of the priority of that's what we've really responded to and i know it's a little confusing because the way we present the gospel in america often isn't a call to follow jesus that's not the primary thing which is interesting because it's the primary way people uh, that jesus called people that simply the call was to call uh, was to come and follow me and sometimes because we've changed that rhetoric to it out whether or not you know where you're going to go when you die. It understandably takes the urgency about follow, out of following Jesus in this life and places it on believing the right things about Jesus so that you can ensure that where you're going to go after you die. And again, I'm not saying that there's not any truth at all to that, but I think it, 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 it creates a mistake because that's not really the call to Christ. And, and, and it's interesting because like, the call to follow Christ is to lay down our lives, to take up our cross and lay down our lives and to yield to serving others in his name and, and to submit to the lordship of Jesus and to pursue a lifestyle of conformity to the image of Christ, which is God's goal for us as Paul articulates in Romans 8. And we've taken that and we've kind of made it like the ultimate self-centered plea. Do you wanna live forever and ever? Well, then here's how you do it. You say this prayer and you start going to church, give a little money and teach a Sunday school class. And then you'll be in and you can live forever and ever. And so it's like we've changed this call to a, the liberty of self-denial to have the ultimate concern for yourself, which is whether or not you're gonna live forever. Now, we're existential beings, we're humans. Of course, we're gonna think about the afterlife. What happens when we die? Will I see my loved ones again? I am not in any way trying to take away from that, nor am I suggesting that our faith has nothing to say to those realities. It does, and I'm really looking forward to that great reunion in heaven, particularly for a couple of really good dogs that I miss. So I totally get that impulse. I really understand that. Um, but ultimately, you have to see, we have to see we have to look at the Gospels and say, why is the Jesus rhetoric so unlike the contemporary evangelical Christian rhetoric? And, and if that's the case, which one ought to change? You know, they, 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 they say that once a, a philosopher, a mystic, and a fundamentalist all died and went to heaven, and um, God called in the, uh, Jesus calls in the philosopher first, and they're in there for about an hour. The philosopher comes up scratching his head going, I can't believe I got it so wrong. And then he goes into the joy set before him. And then uh, the, um, the uh, theologian goes in. Did I say, I didn't say theologian. What did I say the other one was? What? Okay, the mystic. Yeah, that's it. The mystic comes in and he's there and he's there for a couple of hours. So a little bit longer than the philosopher. And he comes out scratching his head going, I can't believe I got so many things wrong. And then Jesus calls in the fundamentalists and they go in and they're there for one hour, two hours, a day goes by, two days go by, three, finally a week goes by. And the door opens up and Jesus comes out going, I can't believe I got it all so wrong. Because that's how fundamentalism works. Because once you yield to that ideology, it becomes your Lord and Savior. 
And it's secondary to wrestling through the complexities of scriptures and the words of Jesus and the complexity of what it means to live a life of intimacy with Christ where I'm following him and I make it my life's ambition before anything else to prioritize a rhythm of life that empowers me to live from the revelation of Christ in me, the hope of glory. So I pursue true spiritual formation so that I am increasingly learning how to be faithful to Jesus and to be conformed to the image of the Son, which is God's goal for us as celebrated in Romans 8. And so it's, it's interesting whenever we think about that and we think about the early church and about how powerful that church was before they even had a Bible organized to read, before they had amplification systems, before they had comfortable places to meet, before they had a church council, before they were declaring, okay, heresy is if you don't believe this and believe this and this means you're out and this means you're in. Again, I'm not saying that history didn't have to go in that, that direction. I understand why we did that. But what's interesting about reading the New Testament is we have to remember it's before any of these things. They wouldn't have said, now to be faithful to Jesus, you need to go read your Bible. They wouldn't have said that because most of them couldn't read in the first place and there was no such thing as a Bible. There was the canon of the Jewish scriptures and then there were these letters that were being circulated by the people who, who, who lived and walked with Jesus and they saw that those letters had some authority because these are people that had direct contact with Jesus or direct contact with someone who had direct contact with Jesus. And, and so, so, so the, 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 the documents that instruct our faith, we have to respect the fact they are, they, they are written in a radically different context than our modern context. And that might be part of the reason why we've drifted away from the emphasis that they have. And so if you were baptized, you were baptized into a lifestyle of following Jesus and being conformed to the image of the Son. And, and you did that by pursuing loving actions in the community and in the relationships that you had. I say, let's go back to that program. That seems a whole heck of a lot better than the complicated mess that we've created for ourselves that we all know isn't working. Just go read in, just go type in the ha headlines, church scandals, church leadership struggles, read story after story. I, I don't understand why for 40 years we've consistently see this thing ripping people apart, destroying leaders and destroying followers. And we're still just showing up and doing the same thing. And, and nobody's saying, wait, pause, time out. Maybe we need to try a different approach. Well, let's be innovative. No, 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 let's not be innovative. Let's go back. Let's go back to the original vision of what Jesus called us to. But that gets difficult because Jesus didn't call anybody to an organized religion. He called them to a relationship with a person. He said, come follow me and ultimately this faith will not work if I'm a church participant but not a follower of Jesus there'll be some fringe benefit from being involved in community I'm not saying that but ultimately it will leave the soul dry and starving if we don't recognize the priority isn't to get saved and attend church the call is to follow Jesus and respond to the Holy Spirit as he is working all things in your life to conform you to the image of the Son. And then learn how to actually cooperate with that process rather than resisting it and creating more tension for ourselves. Now, what does all that have to do with Colossians 3, 14 through 17? Well, 
I think it's fascinating that we get a glimpse into what the early church looked like in these little verses. We don't have a lot of detail, but we have some detail throughout history and throughout the scriptures, and this is one of those places where we get that. Now, we have to understand as we read this, we, want, we are going to try to understand it as best we can as their story. But at the same time, we're going to be asking, what does it mean for our story? And what does it mean for my story? And, and, and the reason why is because this instructions, please understand that the modern church that is a legal organized entity with tax benefit and comfortable chairs and central heat and air the New Testament is not speaking to that at all. Now, I'm not saying that we can't look at their story and make principled applications to our story and where this thing is morphed. I believe that we can, and we strive to do that so that our organization is at least striving to understand how we apply biblical principles in our modern context. But it's important that we understand, contextually, none of the scriptures are speaking to that thing. The closest thing it's speaking to in terms of organized gatherings is your community group because they met in house churches and in catacombs and in small congregations. You can probably look around this room and realize 50 to 80% of the people in this room you don't even know. And maybe 50% of the people in this room we have, you may not have even had the opportunity to speak to. Well, the context that these church services are speaking to, that would have been foreign to them because you would have met in a catacomb or in a house church small enough that you would have known everyone there, kind of like a community group. So what I'm going to do is I want to walk through these and I, and I hope that you see, we certainly try to take our cue from verses like these for what we do here and we'll address a little bit of that as we go. But by and large, this is good counsel for small groups. This is what community groups ought to look like. This is good counsel for whenever you're thinking about your own development of your rhythm of life for your spiritual growth. So we're going to look at this verse and we're going to pull out these elements of worship that we see that were evident during the early church and ask ourselves what might that mean for our story and my story. Colossians 3 verses 14 through 17. And we, 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 I'm jumping off at the last verse we looked at last week. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The, this is God's scripture. May he bless our study of his word this morning. Now, this is a really interesting um, set of verses here. And what really strikes me, first of all, is how simple it is. This isn't complicated. Be grateful people and sing with gratitude in your hearts. Teach, instruct, and warn one another. Encourage one another. Make sure there's singing and there's gratitude present. But let me just sum it up this way. In everything you do, whether it's tending your garden, whether it's date night with your partner, whether it's your ministry or the work that you're doing, or it's just your pickleball obsession, he says, do all in the name of Jesus, which means do all in the nature of Jesus, everything, that you bring that nature to bear in everything that we do. So look at the, look at the way, I put it in your notes, just to kind of, I did this for myself, earlier 
a couple of weeks ago just to kind of look in outline form of this verse. Look at the commands here. Number one, we've got let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Then the command to be thankful. Then to let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. And then the command is to teach and admonish one another. And there's a specific way he says to do that, which is very interesting because it's not a way we often think about. He says, you're supposed to teach and admonish, admonish one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, just for if you're thinking about some of these issues, one of the issues the church has been working through the past 40 years, particularly in evangelicalism, is gender roles, the role of women, and so forth. And there are lots of groups that would say, um, because of other passages in the Bible, that maybe women aren't supposed to have authority to teach in the church. But what's interesting about those passages and what's important about reading a whole, the totality of the New Testament is, look, if you want to have a Reuben and talk about those passages in the context, I'm happy to do that. That's not for this morning. Well, all I want to say is this morning is see, notice, there is no gender restriction on teaching and admonishing one another. This letter is written to the brothers and the sisters, which means in some context, Paul evidently not only allowed but commanded women to be part of the teaching and the instruction that takes place in the local communities. What he says here, written to both genders, teach and admonish one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And then he says, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus and give thanks to God. What is interesting about this beautiful verse that really is beautiful the way it summarizes, but look, just do any, everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Uh, gratitude and thankfulness, they're mentioned about three times, and engaging in singing is mentioned four times. So evidently for the early church, this concept of learning how to appreciate and enter into some sort of connection with God via the gift of music was very important to the early church. And obviously, if you look throughout church history, it's been a central part of what we've done from the very beginning, regardless of whichever splinter group or denomination you're a part of. I promise you, all of them have a history of hymns and songs that they sang that they put together for their movement. In fact, you know, John Wesley gets credit for the Methodist movement because he was a strategist and he put in place a really good strategy. But that just would have been a shallow movement that would have grown quickly and easily um, if it wasn't for some other important element. And those are the hymns written by Charles Wesley. I mean, we know you don't get Methodism without John Wesley, but the truth is you don't have Methodism without Charles Wesley because he's the one that read the education wing of the Methodist movement through all the hymns that he wrote. So we, we, we've had this from, from the very beginning, but I just want to take a moment to meditate on Paul actually emphasizing it here. And what we take from all of this is that the peace of Christ will rule our hearts as we live a life of worship. A life of worship is simply learning to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. So let me do some, some, a little bit of, of, of definition here. When I say worship, I don't mean only playing Hillsong or Bethel and raising your hands and closing your eyes. Now, can it include that? Absolutely it can, and we'll talk a little bit of that, but I, I just don't want to see it focus on one simple expression. Worship is any time I'm engaging in an activity in which my emotions are giving a, a space to speak out my gratitude to God and all that he has done. Whether hymns is your thing, great. Instrumental music that moves your heart, great. Uh, I've, got, I've got a hand drum that I, I love to play only when everyone's out of the house. I've been banned from my hand drum for when people are home. And when they're gone, the dogs don't like it either. I actually have to go outside now because it upsets the dogs as well. 
But I love it. I love it. It's become an extension of my practice of meditation, playing that stupid hand drum. So what I'm, all I'm saying is, let's think broadly when we think about the term worship. And it is inclusive of what we do here, but it certainly is not limited. And the truth is, what we do here is hindered or enhanced by the, our individual lives of worship throughout the week. So, um, so, so let's not keep that too narrow. So here we are, elements of a lifestyle of worship, of a lifestyle of worship, the word of Christ, learning, which is spoken to as teaching and admonishing one another, the word of Christ, learning, singing, and thanksgiving. The word of Christ, learning, singing, and thanksgiving. And what I'm going to suggest, that as we look at these elements in regards to their story, that if you do not have a proactive plan that you are living and pursuing in order to direct your life into a healthy spiritual rhythm of, of growing more deeply in your understanding of what it means to follow Jesus, then I would submit to you, maybe you consider this. It's coming right out of the scripture, and maybe this is a good plan to employ in your own personal rhythm of learning how to engage in these elements of the word of Christ, learning, singing, and thanksgiving. So let's take a look at those just in sequential order. First of all, the word of Christ. Verse 16a simply says, let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. Now what's interesting is the word he uses when he says the word of Christ is literally uh, logos. What he says is let the logos of Christ dwell richly among you. The logos of Christ is supposed to live among us. Now, what's interesting about this word, and because we need to tease this out, what is exactly the logos of Christ? Well, I'll tell you the end at the beginning. I believe it's the message both of Jesus and about Jesus, but both of those are critical. Because evangelicals tend to emphasize the necessity of believing the right things and the message about Christ but they don't often equally emphasize the need to follow the message of Christ. And I actually think that believing about Christ begins the journey, but it is entering into responding to the message of Christ. That's what actually brings the long-term transformation of our lives as we respond to the rhythm that he has lived and presented before us and we engage it ourselves. So this word logos, what's interesting about it, it's used about Christ here, but logos is also the title for Christ. The capital L, logos. In fact, in John's gospel, it's the very first name of Christ that's given. Before we see the name Jesus, we have the name in the beginning was the logos. And the logos was with God and the logos was God. And without the logos, there was nothing made that has been made. So the logos of Christ is both the message about him, it's also his title. In fact, John actually celebrates, now think through this for a second, this, I love this idea. The logos became flesh and it dwelt among us. Logos, if you look at the, the definition in your little interlinear Greek, either your books or your, uh, the Google, whatever you use, um, what you will find is this, logos is an embodiment of an idea or a word that expresses a thought. That's what it means. And this is the title given of Christ. Logos is the embodiment of an idea, which is here you get the concepts of incarnation, where you take something, you put flesh on it so people can see it and touch it and see it in real life example. 
It's the embodiment of the idea or it is the word that expresses a thought. Now think about this. What that means is the incarnation is an expression of the thought of God. This is why Jesus is the most direct revelation of what God is like as is celebrated in Hebrews and some of the other passages. He is the exact representation of God. Why? Because he is the one who embodies the thoughts of God. He's the one that expresses the thought of God. That's what the incarnation is all about, but it gets even better because it means that as Christ embodied the thoughts of God, so we are to embody the thoughts of Christ. That's what it means to let that logos richly dwell within us. And again, it's also an outworking of the phrase we saw in Colossians 2. It's what it means to live according to the revelation that had been hidden to the ages, but now has been revealed. And what is this mystery? Christ in you, the hope of glory. So this idea of the logos, uh, logos of Christ dwelling among, among us, re referring to both the message of and about Christ. For the follower of Jesus, therefore, the most important documents for growth and instruction are the Gospels. If you wanted a recommendation before I would recommend any book that has moved me, any book that has shaped me, any teacher that has influenced me, or any podcast that I would enjoy, I would say if you're not familiar with the autobiography of Jesus, that's where every Christian ought to begin. That is more important than any book of devotion, systematic theology, any great podcast, whether it be N.T. Wright or, or whoever you like to listen to. All of that is good supplementary material, but it ought to supplement your own growth in competency and understanding and meditating upon and being able to really grasp a hold of the core message of the, of the biographies of Jesus. Those biographies we have in the gospels, those, are, and, and then everything else has to, has to submit to the revelation of Jesus. It doesn't matter how pious or how great the thinker was, his ideas have to submit themselves to what is embodied in those biographies of our Lord and Savior. So, my suggestion, rather than waiting to the end, is this. My friends, if you don't have a proactive rhythm of spiritual health, begin with soaking in the Gospels. Do you have any suggestions for that, Pastor? You know I do. Here's a great place to start. Maybe read through Matthew 5, 6, and 7 every day for 100 days. I know that may be a new concept to hear, but it's a good concept. And again, you can do that either way. You can read half a chapter a day until you get through Matthew 5, 6, and 7, a chapter a day, or all three chapters every day. I don't care. But dedicate 100 days to giving yourself over to reading the manifesto, the manifesto of the kingdom of Jesus because that's what you find right there in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Like It is the best summary statement of what the Christian life ought to look like right there at your fingertips and for your eyeballs. And yes, I know this doesn't work for, any, for some of the other challenges and self-improvement things that you're involved with, but audible counts. So if you don't want to read, then get your Audible. Um, there's, a, there's this great British guy. Um, if you text me, I'll send you the name because I don't know how to pronounce his name. And frankly, his last name sounds like uh, an expletive. So I might not do that this morning. 
Uh, maybe I just need to figure out how to pronounce it properly. But text me, it's fantastic. There's just, I don't know, the Bible sounds more holy than coming from an old British man than anything else that I've heard. And I've even heard the James Earl Jones versions, which is pretty good. It's a definite runner up. But this would, but so, so it's fine. If you need to listen to it, it, there's no rules around this. But what I'm saying is allow the atmosphere of your mind to wrestle with the vision of life that Jesus gives his followers in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Read and meditate, but here's the thing, and also wrestle with the scriptures. It's okay to say, you know what? I know Jesus said this. I know Paul said this. I know Moses said this, but where I'm at in my understanding, I just don't think I agree with that. I don't understand it. <gasps> I know you're not supposed to do that. Well, only if indoctrination and conformity is your goal, but if your goal is to actually go, grow and be transformed, Stop ignoring your questions. Christians aren't people that take our questions and leave them on the shelf just so that we can go on in blind faithfulness. That's not what we do. Take those things off the shelf. Be uncomfortable. Let it threaten your previous belief system a little bit. Let it stretch you. Let it make you scratch your head and wanna pick up the phone and talk to someone. It's okay. Read, meditate, and wrestle through the scriptures and don't ignore the things in your heart. You're going, ah, oh, I don't know about that. Because there may be an invitation into a deeper both intellectual and devotional journey that's at your fingertips if you're not scared of your doubt. Doubt is the seedbed of faith. You don't have faith without wrestling through doubt in the same way there's no need for courage if you never know fear. In the same way, we've got to stop demonizing our doubt. In fact, our texts, especially if you read the Psalms, are full of prayers from people praying through seasons of their own doubt. So let's not be afraid of it. Let's be real human beings and recognize this there's existential crisis that comes along with being a finite being living in an infinite universe. It's gonna create some tension from time to time, and that's okay. So read through, wrestle with it, and then begin to speak with Jesus as a friend who is present. And the other side of the coin, worship Jesus as a living Christ who fills all in all. This is the beautiful, beautiful paradoxical paradigms of our faith. Jesus is closer than the brother. He's my friend, and he's also my Lord and my creator to whom I owe my allegiance and my submission, both at the same time. It's so frustrating the way we like split ways. And like some people say, well, it's really important you have a robust vision of the powerful God. No, 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 it's important that you really walk closely with Jesus as your friend. Why are we always given this dynamic of the binary? Why? Why can't we understand healthy spirituality means you know what it's like to experience moments of intimacy with the Almighty. And you also know what it's like to be overwhelmed at the thought of his majesty and his grace and his mercy towards you. Let's incorporate both in our rhythm and the way we learn to worship. But the message of Christ that ought to dwell among us, what exactly is that message? Well, this phrase again, logos, is used in another letter Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. And I think it sheds some light on how we can understand what this means to allow the logos of Christ to dwell among us. Look at what, Corinthians, what, he, what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.19 to the Corinthian church. That is in Christ. 
God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed the logos of reconciliation to us. Now, if this does what I talked about earlier and stirs up some of your beliefs and agitation, remember, we're just reading the scripture here. No need to send me an email right now. You can send it this afternoon. But just make sure that the discussion we're having isn't with my opinions, that we're wrestling with what the scripture says. Because look at what this says. In Christ, God reconciled the world to himself. God did not count the world's trespasses against them. Not my words, Paul's words. God has dignified the body of Christ with being the stewards of the news of the reconciliation that God has accomplished in Christ. That is the heartbeat of our message. What are you about? We are here to tell the world all obstacles have been removed, not by you, and they're not affected by your behavior, but because of what God has done. You are welcome to join the dance of God with us, and there is nothing that disqualifies you. That is the core announcement. That's the core message that we are called to bring to others. Now, remember this word reconcile. According to Merriam-Webster, simply means this, to restore to friendship or harmony. Following Jesus is about aligning my body, mind, soul, and spirit to a rhythm of life that allows me to walk in the harmony that's intended for all of God's creation. And it's an understanding that living antichrist creates disharmony disharmony in my mental health, disharmony in my physical health, disharmony in my spirit. It creates disharmony in my marriage, in my relationship with my kids, in my friendships, in my relationship with my job. Living anti-Christ is not getting away with sin. It's having to live under the tyranny of chaos. That's what it is. Because living anti-Christ equals disharmony living in Christ, following Jesus. This is an invitation, not just to get our spiritual uh, life insurance for the afterlife, but it's rather an invitation. Take my ways upon you. What did Jesus say? My yoke is easy. My burden is light, but you've got to take it upon you. And you're going to learn a different way of living than you're going to learn from other, any other system out there that you can follow. We follow Jesus and we learn to live lives that are harmonious in God's kingdom. And the Spirit takes us on that journey. So my suggestion for you is to think about, talk about, and journal this thought. Notice that Paul doesn't just say that God has forgiven sin, but that he has chose not to count them against us. If the message that God has given us is reconciliation, why do we so often speak a message about the things that make God angry or cause separation? That's what I was taught to speak. The very first thing that I was taught to do if I'm going to share my faith is to convince people that they are sinners and they deserve hell. And we had a little prepackaged thing. Whether you supported Adolf Hitler or are you still paper clips from the office? 
It's all the same to a holy God. He hates you, but he can love you if you follow these instructions. While at the same time, quoting God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I mean, so it gets really confusing when you give yourself over to really trying to master these things, these techniques. So, but as I read verses in the scripture, I'm like, why, why is that where we start? These are the things that make God angry. These are the social issues that make God want to bring judgment on a nation because the judgment that was received by Christ is insufficient. And that's what we're saying. If we're preaching a God that still has to act out in violence and vengeance against people, then you can't believe that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Do you see what I'm saying? These things are not congruent. And I know what we do is we get used to all this rhetoric, so we just start saying it, and, and it's hazy and confusing, but this is what we've always heard, so that's what we keep saying. But maybe it's time for us to really take seriously this revelation that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And in the process of that, he wasn't holding the world's sins against them because he was bringing reconciliation that he could accomplish, not that we could accomplish. And so now this becomes the reality of our life. This becomes the way um, we proclaim this message and my friends, a message of separation is the exact opposite of a message of reconciliation. Do we see that? A message of reconciliation is celebrating what has brought, been brought together. A message of separation is mourning what is apart. Now, is there ever a place to speak about separation? Sure, this is why you have to believe. Because if you don't believe you're reconciled, you'll live as though you're separate. It doesn't alter anything until you take the revelation into your own soul. Christ is in me. I am in Christ. Christ is one with God. I am one with God. This is not new age, false religion. This is New Testament Christianity. This is the book of Colossians being applied the mystery, my friends, that we should be celebrating. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now then, I want us to stop right here. You can put that in your Bible. We will finish this sermon next week. Right now, I just want to stop here. And you know, it's a, it's a learned obedience because when I finished typing out all those thoughts, I thought to myself, that's all we need to do this Sunday morning. We're like, nah, I gotta get through the passage. We gotta get through. Everyone's giving me a hard time about how long it took me to go through Luke. But we're not gonna do that. We're gonna pause right here. Because I really want you leaving here stirred and even disturbed by the gratuitous grace that is present in God's message of reconciliation. And the truth is, we have difficulty sharing it with others primarily because we've yet to accept it for ourselves. It's amazing. Week after week, I have the privilege of talking with either present or through some of the online forums I'm a part of or through meetings. I, every week, 
I meet with Christians who are burdened by shame and guilt and despair because of their behavior and their performance. And you know what? If none of them come across my path, all I have to do is look in the mirror to find another one. It's the hardest thing to do to have the audacity to live like you're a forgiven person. It's the most powerful thing that you can do to bear witness to Jesus is to live like you are a forgiven person. I'm not saying you don't still make it jokes. I mean, jokes. You also make mistakes. Where did that come in? You also make mistakes. Uh, and we're going to actually talk about repentance next week. We were going to tack it on at the end of this one, but it deserves its own place. But you have to rest in that for yourself. And look, it's complicated because you know what? You may rightly feel shame before someone else because of something that you've done to harm them or hurt them. And there is work to reconcile that. But your hope in that reconciliation comes from that the, that the reconciliation has already been accomplished on your behalf. God, not holding your trespasses against you, has reconciled you in Christ. Now again, email me after next week's sermon. We'll bring the other half where we talk about responding to repenting over sin. But even that can only work if it flows out of a deep security. I will never know his rejection. I will never know his anger. And I will never know his displeasure in who I am as an individual. My worth. My friends, we have to shed shame and have the audacity to live like forgiven people or we will have no power in what we proclaim. Would you all stand as the worship team comes forward? And so what I want you to do today as we get ready to come to the table of our Lord, I want you to think about this logos of reconciliation. And my question is this, are you allowing an awareness of your forgiveness and your being brought into unity with God? Is that a conscious thing from which you're living your life? Is that the, is that the conscious reality from which you're building your own self-concept? And so, if not, maybe this is a moment for you to repent of that unbelief and to let go of that shame. Let it go. God has reconciled the world to himself. Let that logos of Christ, the logos of reconciliation, let it not just be a conviction, but let it live in you. So take a moment, engage with the spirit, ask him to open your eyes, to set you free so that you can be useful to open the eyes of others and set them free as well.